Good morning. Better. <laughs> it is a privilege to be with you. Some of you heard that my wife Maria is with me. Some of you heard that we've been married for 38 years. I know that some of you heard that because you gasped. I saw it. I saw that you gasp. Uh, but that's okay. I gasped too when I think that uh, she would be married to me for 38 years. Uh, together we have three daughters, Michelle, Marissa, and Amanda, three grandchildren, Jashani, uh, Caleb, and Bethany. Uh, we are almost empty nesters. We have one daughter to go. Maria's giving me a look uh, because she does not want me to say that we are taking applications. Um, only, only godly men need apply. Um, and for you guys who think you're godly men, just remember I did 20 years in law enforcement before going into the ministry. Um, okay. Also, I, also I, I learned um, just since coming out here, that apparently I am Japanese. Now some of you are wondering, why is he even standing up there? But no, someone in your church has developed a rumor, and it's a positive rumor, because there's nothing wrong with being Japanese. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being Japanese. But someone in the church uh, believes that the name Miyano is Japanese, probably because it ends in a vowel, um, probably. so. Um, and uh, that, uh, that individual and I will have a conversation about uh, uh, ethnicity and genetics and, and, uh, and all of that uh, sometime after church. Um, but no, again, there's nothing wrong with being Japanese. If any of you are Japanese, it's good to be Japanese. I'm just not Japanese. Uh, more Italian than Japanese. So Italians' names end in a vowel as well. Yes. And, and so do Spanish people. And I'm not Spanish, though, either. But that's not why I'm here. We are, we are here this morning uh, to open up the Word of God, and we are going to uh, look at what God's Word says regarding a call to holiness, answering the call to holiness. So if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading from verse 1 uh, through verse 21 this morning. Our focus is going to be verses 13 to 21 this morning. And as you're turning there, I do come with greetings from Grace Fellowship Church. There's a lot of similarities between our two churches. Uh, we are a small Reformed Baptist church in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, we subscribe to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, we have about 40 members in our church and about 70 to 80 children uh, in our church. We are, are uh, a church of burgeoning families, and, and we praise God for that. Um, we're, we are also what might be labeled a family-integrated church, uh, which means we do everything together, uh, including worship and the study of God's Word, all of it. And so if you get up to take a child out today, if it's not maybe to change a diaper, I might say, hey, hey, don't go anywhere. Babies are welcome. I don't mind if babies cry or scream. Or, that's part of being part of a family. So that's, that's who we are at, uh, at Grace Fellowship. And, and again, with warm greetings from them, I'm, I'm very thankful to be able to be here today. So, all right. Um, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? Let's honor, honor God in that way. First uh, Peter chapter 1, and I will be reading and teaching from the ESV today. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, God's Word tells us this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown by the foundation of the world, or rather before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You may be seated. So again, the title of this morning's message is The Call to Holiness. Uh, The Word of God in both Testaments calls us to be holy as God is holy. And our passage for this morning is a beautiful example of this clarion call drawn both from the Old and New Testaments, a call to holiness. Now, as we study this wonderful passage this morning, we're going to learn that to answer God's call to live holy lives, his people, Christians, and only Christians are his people, must have prepared minds. They must uh, have obedient hearts. They must also have holy conduct, godliness, and they must also have a prayerful life. And undergirding all of this, of course, is the foundation of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The gospel once and daily believed and lived. Now, Don Curran, he is an itinerant minister and evangelist and a a missionary who I've known for quite some time. We've we've served together in places like Norway. Uh, He's written a foreword to a soon-to-be-published study guide that I've written. Marv is publishing that. And it's a study guide for J.C. Ryle's classic work, Holiness. Are any of you familiar with that? Any of you? Oh, you should be. More of you. Yes. Not with my study guide, but with J.C. Ryle's, with J.C. Ryle's book. Uh, truly, it had been one of the most formational books in my life um, as a Christian. Uh, and in the foreword, Don Curran writes this. Ours is a generation of indiscipline. There is a deficiency of regimen in the pursuit of true godliness. Modern believers want spirituality without spiritual formation. But there is no shortcut to holiness. Sadly, what is most grievous is a contentment to live without it. There is a great need for the contemporary church to take heaven by storm, a need that does not despise prophesying and endures hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The body of Christ can ill afford to leisurely meander any longer, for the day of reckoning is at hand. The call to holiness is conveyed in Scripture in terms of aggression. Such terms, to only mention a few, are resist steadfast in the faith, endure temptation, fight the good fight of faith, guard your heart with all diligence, run so you may attain, strive for the mastery, pursue holiness, and the violent take it by force. So my friends, answering the call to holiness is the true believer's life's work. 
It is his aim, his goal, his desire, his hope. It is not for the Christian an attempt to earn God's love or to keep God's love. Rather, it is an effort founded upon genuine thankfulness to and a desired reciprocating love for God, for the love God has shown him through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Holiness is not a work that leads to salvation. Holiness is the fruit of salvation. The Christian wants to be like Jesus, and not that Jesus may be created in his own imagination to suit himself, but the Jesus who actually is, the Christian wants to be like Jesus. The Christian not only wants to be with Jesus, the Christian wants to be like Jesus. He wants to be more like Jesus every day, and it genuinely pains him when he falls short of God's glory. He wrestles with his own flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that victory is most certainly possible because Jesus died not only to free him from the penalty of sin, but also to free him from the power, the hold that sin has on his life. Jesus Christ died to not only free us from the penalty of sin, but to free us from the hold that sin has in our lives. You know, we... we uh, we certainly don't want to, to drift into the heresy known as sinless perfectionism, right? We don't certainly want to be so arrogant as to think that we either have or we can attain moral perfection as Jesus was perfect in every way here in this life. And there are street preachers running around, street, street screechers, I think is a better term. There are street screechers running around who think they have actually attained uh, perfection uh, in this life. One lady believes her husband hasn't sinned in almost 20 years. And my first thought was, you spend no time together <laughs> at all. Yes, the Christian desperately wants to be holy as God is holy. His mission isn't to be perceived as holier than his brother. His mission is to answer the call to holiness, to glorify his Father who is holy. And as a result of remembering the well-guarded salvation we have received through faith in Jesus Christ, and, and Peter lays that out in verses 3 through 9 in chapter 1, and as a result of having and maintaining the right perspective regarding that most precious gift of salvation, and, and Peter expresses that very succinctly in verses 10 through 12, we ought to live as a result in a certain way. We ought to live in a certain way. We should answer and keep answering God's call to live holy lives for his glory. So let's begin our look at four behaviors to which Peter calls us, starting with having a prepared mind. Having a prepared mind. Peter writes in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we're looking at a rather large, at least for me, a large swatch of Scripture here. A dozen sermons can be written on 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. So we're going to be going relatively quickly, and we may not cover every single thing that Peter has to say to us in this passage. So as you're thinking of that, know that I know that as well. Uh, there's a lot more that could be said than I'm going to say during this hour together. Um, but I was told I could preach to about two or three this afternoon and no one would mind. And lying is a sin. All right. The Greek word here translated in ESV as prepared is most literally translated as gird up or to raise up a tunic, tucking it into the belt to keep it out of the way while working or, or fighting. It's also used in the sense of bracing oneself with a view of heavy and active exertion. And Peter may have had Jesus' words in mind, which we find in Luke 12, 35 to 36. Jesus said, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes 
and knocks. Now, the Christian is set apart by God and for God at regeneration and justification by the grace of God alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. He or she is now a saint. Now, that word, saint, it is not used here in the superstitious, idolatrous, cultic, Roman Catholic sense of the word, but rather in a biblical sense as one set apart by God, to God, and for God. That's a saint. And he or she is made holy. He or she does not make himself or herself holy. The Christian is made holy by God, set apart by God to be a saint. Sanctification also begins at regeneration. However, unlike regeneration and justification, which are one-time acts of God, sanctification is not only immediate upon salvation and completed when we are glorified in the Lord's presence, but sanctification is also progressive. It's ongoing. Uh, The Christian is sanctified at regeneration, being sanctified throughout his Christian life, and will one day be fully sanctified when he is with the Lord in glory. Now, with that said and understood, no one lives a holy life by osmosis. You you don't become more holy by simply hanging around holy people. You, uh, You don't become reformed by simply going to a reformed church. You don't become evangelistic simply by watching YouTube videos about evangelism. These things don't happen by osmosis. Holiness doesn't happen by osmosis. You don't become more holy by simply, again, hanging around holy people, although you certainly are much better off in the company of the godly than the ungodly. The sanctifying and progressive work of personal holiness is just that. It is work, brothers and sisters. It is work. And that work begins with the preparation of the mind. And again, this is not a work for salvation, lest any of you be confused It is a work as a result of salvation. The pursuit of holiness is a fruit of salvation. It is not what you do so that you can be saved. And with so many competing interests, not only for our time but for our thoughts, we must be very proactive in the renewing of our minds, in taking every thought captive, and dwelling on things above. The Apostle Paul spoke to all three, the renewing of the mind, taking every thought captive, dwelling on things above. All three uh, of these passages that we're going to look at briefly are, are likely very familiar to you, but before you nod your head in agreement as you hear these scriptures, I want to encourage you, exhort you, to ask yourself if you simply know the verses Or are you truly applying these verses in your life as a means of answering God's call to holiness? Regarding the renewing of the mind, Paul writes in Romans 12, 1 to 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformation from worldly thinking to holy thinking, from worldly living to holy living, from conformity to the world to conformity to Christ's likeness happens when one's mind is renewed, when it's transformed. And it is from the Greek word here translated as transformed that we derive A number of other English words, such as the word metamorphosis. For the sake of time, I'm not going to paint the picture that probably comes to mind for for all of you, something you're already thinking about, a, a familiar image of metamorphosis, the caterpillar emerging from his cocoon, the transformative change from one thing into another. And the Greek word here translated as renewal appears in only one other New Testament verse, and that is Titus 3.5, which reads, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So here we see a 
prime example of the synergistic work of sanctification in the life of the believer. Now, that's a word we talked briefly about during the first hour. Synergism is the idea of cooperation, two working together in in one task or working towards one goal. In salvation, it is not a synergistic work. It is a monergistic work. Only one is working. Only God works in the salvation of the sinner. The, the only thing, as it was said many, many years ago, the only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's all we bring to the table. We are recipients of God's grace and mercy and love. We are not actors in any way bringing about God's mercy, grace, and love. Everything we do that brings God glory is a result of the work that he's done in us. And salvation is of the Lord. It is not of the Lord and man. But synergism, on the other hand, the the synergistic work, for example, of sanctification in the life of every believer is a cooperative effort. Paul's emphasis in Romans 12, too, is the spiritual work of the Christian in his or her ongoing renewal of the mind. Yet in Titus 3, 5, Paul focuses his attention on the Holy Spirit's work of renewal in concert with his regenerative work in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit regenerates a person, causing him or her to be born again. And then the Christian, empowered now by the indwelling Holy Spirit, works toward proving that which is good and acceptable and perfect by the renewal of his mind. And how do we renew our own mind? Well, one way is by rejecting conformity to the world. We should actively and continually reject any and every temptation to be conformed to the world's behaviors and beliefs when those behaviors and beliefs run contrary to the only perfect source of instruction for faith and practice, the God-breathed word of God. And of course, you know what that means. Well, that means you need to know the book. You need to actually know the book. And to do that, you must spend more time in the Word of God than on social media. You must spend more time in the Word of God than you do watching football, soccer, hockey, or dare I say, even baseball. Yeah, that was for someone special. (laughs) But are you ready for this? You should also spend more time in the Word of God than you do in books about the Word of God. You should spend more time in the Word of God than in books about the Word of God. Now, I am not at all denigrating solid Bible teachers who are truly a gift to the bride of Christ. I benefit much from the writings of theologians, particularly dead guys, because their theology never changes. I don't have to ever worry about Spurgeon falling away. <laughs> ever. I, I, don't, I don't ever have to worry about Jonathan Edwards deconstructing on TikTok. I don't ever have to worry about that. But none of your favorite writers, none of my favorite writers after the first century AD were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write their books. No author outside of Scripture, whether dead or alive, has ever written anything for your consideration, for my consideration, that should be given more consideration than the Word of God itself. So spend time in the book. You know, don't don't assume that even the best of Bible teachers, simply because they put a verse in parentheses after their own sentence, that they actually know what that verse in parentheses is saying. Actually open up your Bible and read the book. Another way to prepare your mind for the pursuit of holiness is to be proactive in taking every thought captive. In 2 Corinthians Corinthians 10, 3-6, Paul wrote, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your, diso- when your obedience rather is complete. 
Now, the Greek word translated in 2 Corinthians 10.5 um, has warfare in mind. In addition to taking captive, the word can be translated as to subdue or to ensnare, to capture. Warfare is difficult. Warfare is costly. Warfare is sacrificial. It, it involves both voluntary and involuntary personal deprivation. Warfare is never described and should never be described as fun. Spiritual warfare is no different. It's hard, and sometimes, metaphorically speaking, it is bloody. The destruction of fortresses, destroying speculations, punishing all disobedience. Does any of that sound like a good time? No, but it's good for us. If you want to answer the call to holiness, then you need to get into the fight and stay there the rest of your natural days for the glory of Christ. You need to take every thought captive. And to do that, whenever that thought comes into your mind that is contrary to the word of God, and therefore contrary to the will of God, you need to begin that fight immediately. One of the most important things I've ever learned from the writing of a dead guy was in a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, greatest preacher probably in the first half of the 20th century, first three quarters of the 20th century, in his book, Spiritual Depression. If you've ever struggled with anxiety or depressive thoughts or anything like that, I highly recommend that book. But one of the things he said, and the thing that stuck with me more than anything else, is he said, Christians need to stop listening to themselves, and they need to start telling themselves the truth. That's, by definition, what it means to take every thought captive, right? When we're thinking the wrong way, we're listening to ourselves. That's what we're doing. And when those things happen, when those times come, wherever, whether it's anxiety or depression or worry or fear or anger or whatever it might be, as soon as that thought comes, you take it captive, you stop, and you begin telling yourself the truth. And how do you know what to tell yourself? You read the book. You know the book. You know the book. Having a prepared mind, a mind prepared to answer God's call to, holy life, to a holy life, involves the renewal of your mind, the taking of every thought captive, and lastly, dwelling on things above. Dwelling on things above. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 5 through 9, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellent, praiseworthy. Now, what Paul is not necessarily calling Christians to do is trying to find things in the world or even in other people that fall into these categories. Now, while we can find con contemporary examples of things or people we can categorize in these ways, I mean, I can think of my own wife and, and think of someone who is right and pure and lovely and of good repute and excellent and praiseworthy, right? I, I, could, I, could, look at a, I could look at a sunrise or a sunset and say how excellent that is and, and how praiseworthy that is to glorify and praise God who is the master artisan. I can certainly look in those categories to find examples of what Paul is saying here. And, and again, in those instances, we can have a cause to worship God as a result. But Paul is calling Christians in this passage to set their sights higher, much higher. Paul is calling Philippians to look to Christ. Jesus is true. Jesus is honorable. Jesus is right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent. Jesus is praiseworthy. He is perfectly so, and perfectly so in so many other ways 
and categories. Do you want to prepare your mind to answer the call to holiness? Then look unto Christ. Keep your eyes on him. Now, I think many Christians, and, and I know there have been times when this has been true about me, many Christians fall into discouragement, maybe even depression, as they recognize they are not as holy as they ought to be, or, or maybe not as holy as they want to be, because they spend too much time looking in the mirror and not enough time looking to Christ. They spend way too much time looking in the mirror instead of looking to the cross of Christ and his finished work. We look in the mirror and sometimes we think too highly of ourselves. We look in the mirror and we fail to see Christ because our view of him is obscured by the person who is in the mirror. We can also look in the mirror and dwell on how sinful and capable and unworthy we are. Now, it's not necessarily always a bad thing to do that. But when we stay there, when we stay there and we wallow in that mire of what now becomes self-pity, we, in effect, relegate the shed blood of Christ and his sacrifice as a common and insufficient thing. We trample underfoot the blood of Christ, shed for the remissions of sins. We subconsciously say to ourselves what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection is insufficient to cover, insufficient to wash away this sin or that sin or whatever it is that I'm seeing in the mirror at the moment. We think to ourselves, I not only deserve to be punished, but I don't think God is punishing me enough. So I'll do it myself. There's a lot of pride in that kind of thinking. Think about how proud that is. The perfect judge of the universe, who if you're in Christ, you're no longer under him as your judge, but your perfect father now in heaven who decides perfectly, I'm going to discipline my child Tony in this way. And I say, you're not doing a good enough job disciplining me. I think you should be disciplining me more because I'm so wicked and evil. How arrogant is that? Right? Now, granted, most, most of the time, we think he's being too hard on us. Right? And that is equally prideful and arrogant and narcissistic to say that he's being too hard on us when all we deserve from him ultimately is his wrath against our sin. But we are likewise prideful and arrogant and narcissistic when we say, hey, God, you're not punishing me enough. I, I think I'm worse than that. I think I need more. Either way, we're looking in the mirror instead of looking, looking to Christ. Worse still, sometimes when we look in the mirror, we do so because Jesus simply isn't enough. We're discontent with our lot and discontent with our Lord and we want more and we look into the mirror to grumble and complain. Brothers and sisters, if you're doing any of these things, if you've ever done any of these things like me, you need to repent. You need to repent of this kind of sinful thinking. Repent and dwell on things above. Renew your mind. Take every thought captive and dwell on Christ. Look to Christ. You will be all the more prepared to answer God's call to live a holy life. Now, in order to answer God's call to live holy lives, his people, Christians, must have prepared minds. They also must have obedient hearts and holy conduct. The two really go hand in hand. And we see this in verses 14 to 16. In 1 Peter chapter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, of course, the, the Greek word translated as obedient in verse 14 means what it says. To be obedient is to be submissive and compliant. And this obedience is typically almost always in response to someone speaking. Obedience is following orders. <laughs> That's what obedience is. Parents, obey your children. 
Yeah, you're supposed to follow their orders. Right? Uh, when, a, when a government is acting justly, when, when they are punishing evil and promoting that which is good, we should be following orders. We should be obeying those laws that are just, that are promoting holiness and godliness. Right? Because these authorities do not bear the sword for nothing. So if they are acting in such a way as to bring God glory, if they are acting in such a way as to bring about righteousness and true justice, we should be following orders. And we hate that. We hate that. We would rather be rebellious. We would rather be our own bosses. Who's ever said, young or old, you ain't the boss of me? Right? <laughs> An honest man, young man in the very back. Your parents will be talking to you later. <laughs> but he's right. If we don't say it, we at least think it. You ain't the boss of me. But, holy, but obedience is obeying orders. Doing what we're told to do. Obeying commands given to us. So how do we obey? And how do we know when it comes to our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ what it means and what it looks like to obey him? Yes, God has written his law in our hearts. Yes, he has given each of us a conscience, the innate ability to discern what is right and wrong according to God's perfect moral standard. We know it's wrong to lie because the God who created us isn't a liar. We know it's wrong to steal because the God who created us isn't a thief. We know sexual immorality is wrong because the God who created us is faithful. We know hatred is wrong because the God who created us isn't a murderer. Yes, he's written these moral standards on our hearts. But in a metaphysical sense, uh, the, the study of the way things are and the way things ought to be, where do we go to learn what God says regarding how to obey the Lord Jesus Christ? And at the risk of sounding like a broken record, it's the book! It's the Bible. That's where we go. With that in mind, listen now to the voice of God. Psalm 119.57, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Psalm 119.101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. John 8.51, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 23 to 24, Jesus answered him, if, you, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Obedience without love is legalism. Love without obedience is antinomianism. Familiar with that word? No law. Many Christians running around thinking, I love Jesus, I don't have to worry about keeping his law. I love Jesus, he doesn't care if I lie. I love Jesus, he doesn't care if I look at porn. I love Jesus, he doesn't care if I step out of my wife because I love Jesus. That's antinomianism. Obedience without love is legalism. Welcome to the world of the Pharisees. And love without obedience is antinomianism. Now, how will you know if you have an obedient heart? How will you know if you are not obeying God as you should? Well, it won't be in the self-righteous effort of keeping the law. Without the word of God, which includes Christ's expansion of the basic principles of the Ten Commandments, i.e. don't look with lust and don't hate, you wouldn't know what should motivate you to keep the law. You wouldn't know that everything that is not done in faith, including keeping the law, by the way, is sin. Romans 14, 23, but whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Now, don't check out here because he's not only talking about what's on the table, all right? But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 
If I help a little old lady across the street and I don't do it for the glorification of Christ and in faith in Christ, it will be held against me when I stand before God. Because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In addition to hearing the voice of God, and God only speaks to his people today in and through his word, the Bible, that's how God speaks. In order to know what and how you must obey the Lord Jesus Christ, you also need to live a life of applied obedience. Now hear me, again, I'm not telling you to live a certain way in order to earn, deserve, or keep God's love. I'm telling you that God commands you to live a certain way as an outpouring of thankfulness and love for God because he first loved you, loved you enough to save you by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Any thought or overture towards answering God's call to holiness without actively engaging in applied obedience is just wishful thinking and not even honest wishful thinking. Why? Because we do what we care about. We do what we care about. We can pontificate all we want, that we want to be more like Christ, that we want to live godly, holy lives that are pleasing to the Lord. In the end, however, the extent to which we want to live holy lives will be an outworking of the adage that we do what we care about. And what so often divides our attention, our loyalty, and our love? Well, Peter tells us, in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Our former lusts, our ignorance, our old and bad habits, our sin can from time to time rear their ugly heads. And while Christ died to free us from the penalty of sin, as well as from the power of sin, we remain for now in these sin-stained earthen vessels. The obedient heart is one that having been changed by God from stone to flesh, having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, seeks daily and habitually to flee the sin he or she once loved. Not only should the Christian want to put off sin, but he or she also wants to put on Christ. To put off sin without putting on Christ is legalism. To claim to put on Christ without putting off sin is hypocrisy. Uh, Paul writes in Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Putting off sin and putting on Christ, by doing that, we will be able to answer God's call to holiness. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also. In all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, verses 15 to 16. We will exude holy conduct. If we're genuinely pursuing holiness, we will exude holy conduct. We will live godly lives, living in such a way that the people around us can expect we will do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. Yes, in order to answer God's call to live holy lives, his people, Christians, must have prepared minds. They must have obedient hearts and holy conduct, godliness, Lastly, in order to answer God's call to live holy lives, we must be in regular communication with him. We must have prayerful lives. Peter writes in verse 17, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter continues this thematic element of conduct as he addresses our next point regarding answering the call to holiness, the prayerful life. Peter writes, if you address or since you address as father. Now, the Greek word translated here as address appears some 30 times in the New Testament. And here, here are some examples. Acts 2.21 and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, there it is, 
shall be saved. In the dramatic and miraculous scene of the way Ananias, uh, where Ananias healed Saul of Tarsus and then prophesying over him, we read in Acts 22, 16, now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. In Romans 10, 12, Paul writes, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches for all who call on him. And in addition to this sense of addressing God in prayer, there's also a sense in this calling of, of addressing him by name or by title. In Acts 1, as the apostle, apostles gathered to determine who would replace Judas as the next apostle, we read in verse 23, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And when the Roman centurion, who was instructed by the angel to send men to Joppa to summon Peter, we read in Acts 10.5, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is also called Peter. So now while most commentators I, I read see Peter's use of the word address in the sense of calling out to the Father in prayer, there are those who read it as addressing God as the paternal ruler of the universe. But it's clear, however, based on the context here in 1 Peter, that Peter has in mind his readers engaging in prayer. That's what he's calling them to. And again, the word if in verse 17 does not express a sense of doubt or bringing into question whether Peter's readers pray. Rather, Peter uses the word in the sense of since, as a foregone conclusion that those who address God as Father are those who call upon their Father in heaven in prayer. Christians pray. Christians pray. If I were to survey the room, starting with the guy here in the pulpit, I think we'd all say we don't pray enough. If anyone answers to the contrary, saying, oh yeah, I pray plenty, there will be counseling available to you from your elders following this service to set you right because you think too highly of yourself. None of us pray as much as we should. None of us pray as we ought. We all can do more regarding prayer. There can be no real, however, there can be no real and meaningful Christ-likeness apart from prayer. Jesus was the God-man of prayer. Yes, Jesus prayed before meals. We could probably all raise our hand and say we do that. Jesus, however, when he did that, at least on two occasions, resulted in the miraculous feeding of tens of thousands of people. We've never done that. However, Jesus was also the epitome of obedience to the biblical mandate to pray without ceasing. Jesus prayed before raising Lazarus from the dead. He prayed aloud. He prayed in silence. He prayed in public. He prayed in private. He spent entire nights forfeiting all sleep and comfort to commune with his Father in prayer. And he was in perfect relationship with his father. And he did that. Jesus not only prayed for his apostles, but he prayed for all those who would believe the gospel because of the apostles' teaching. In other words, he prayed for us, brothers and sisters. And he prays for us continually. Listen, uh, Boy, if you ever struggle with assurance, if you've ever struggled with assurance, if you ever have a season where you struggle with assurance, camp in John 17. What's known as the high priestly prayer, commonly known as the high priestly prayer. If you study that chapter, you will be hard-pressed to walk away without a lack of assurance if you're truly in Christ. Here's part of what Jesus said. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. In this portion of the chapter, Jesus had just finished praying for his apostles, for what they were going to do. In this 
portion of the prayer, he's praying for those who would come to believe through the apostles' teaching, through the gospel. Who's he praying for? Us. Then he says this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I'm going to ask a couple of questions. I just want you to answer in your own mind. Can Jesus pray anything other than a perfect prayer? Okay, you can answer out loud if you want to. I'm not the boss of you. Can God the Father do anything but hear and answer a prayer perfectly according to his will? No. So Jesus prays the perfect prayer to God the Father who can only answer perfectly. And he's praying that each and every one of us who are in Christ will one day be where he is forever. What's going to happen? We're going to heaven. The follower of Jesus Christ, the born-again believer of Jesus Christ, saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, is going to heaven no matter what. Because that's what Jesus prays continually before the Father, and the Father answers that prayer perfectly. What more assurance do you need? What more assurance do you need? Whether car crash or cancer or financial calamity or whatever it might be, what assurance more what more assurance do you need than every moment the lord is praying interceding for you that you will be where he is and the father says yes every single time the follower of jesus christ can and should have real assurance jesus was perfectly dedicated and devoted to prayer of course, it was the Apostle Paul who exhorted the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. And if we look at the men and women most used of God in the early church and throughout church history, they were all people of prayer, not occasional prayer, but rather prayer as a way of life. And even they would confess in their writings and in their journals that they have gone slack in prayer or that they don't pray enough. But they were people of prayer. When you think of those godly men and women of the last hundred years who have done great things for the kingdom in pulpits and in unnamed villages, an intimate look at their lives would reveal vibrant prayer lives. Peter tells his readers, people of prayer, to conduct themselves in fear during their time on earth. Fear, reverence, awe, obedience, love, fear of God. Is anyone really in awe of God or have a reverential fear of God who does not address him as father and go to him in prayer like a child clinging to his or her father? Can you even make such a case from the word of God? I don't think so. So as we've seen during our, our brief time here in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21, to answer God's call to live holy lives, his people, Christians, must have prepared minds. They must have obedient hearts. They must have holy conduct, godliness, and they must have a prayerful life. And of course, undergirding all of this is the foundation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Peter ends his call to holiness this way in verses 18 to 21. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What we've considered this morning, which is answering God's call to holiness, is only possible for those redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, who came to die for his people. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the, the eternal second person of the one and only triune God who had, has been, and is with the Father 
through whom all things were created, the one who died the death he did not deserve to take upon himself the punishment each one of us rightly deserves for our sins against God and forever defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. God the Father raised God the Son from the dead and bestowed upon him glory. Why? So that our faith and hope are in God. There is no other way to have authentic faith in God, but through faith in Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the way and the truth and the life. And if we truly belong to Christ, then our heart's desire, as imperfect as we all are, is to live holy lives pleasing to our Father in heaven. God has provided every one of his precious blood-bought people both the ways and the means to do that through the power of his Holy Spirit. So may we all therefore answer God's call to holiness for his glory. Do I have a couple more minutes? Am I all right? Yeah? So I want to tell you a story. A story about a farmer. I live in Iowa now. I know a lot more about farms than I ever did when I lived in Southern California. There are no farms in Southern California, just in case you were wondering, unless they're all made of concrete. I don't think there are any farms in Southern California. But we've become very familiar with farms, and we even have a little bit of at least head knowledge about farming now. So I want to tell you a quick story about a farmer. Farmer gets invited to uh, a banquet. A very wealthy man invites this farmer to a banquet. He's never been to a banquet in his life, and he's allowed to bring one guest. So he um, decides to bring his pig. Look, he's not a sophisticated guy. Don't laugh. He finds a tux, and he decides that he's going to find one for his pig, too. So they get dressed to the nines, and they show up at this banquet, this feast, this black tie affair, and people are beginning to wonder why this guy brought a pig. But they didn't want to offend him, <laughs> so they let him in with his pig. So he found his place at the banquet table. He sits down. There's his place guard, farmer, and guest. He sits at his spot, puts his pig up on the chair in the guest spot. They begin to serve the food. Now, the farmer, farmer's not crazy. He was a little concerned about bringing his pig to a banquet, but he didn't want to come alone, so he brought the pig. But just in case, he brought a pail of slop with him. Uh, that's not unreasonable. He brings a pail of slop with him, and he tries to discreetly just set it down on the floor between their seats, right? Just in case the pig doesn't go for all this very expensive, delicious human food. So the bell rings, and they begin to eat, and uh, the farmer starts to eat the first course. And the pig kind of sniffs at it a little bit, but then the pig notices the slop. And so what, do you, what does the pig do? The pig acts like a pig. The pig dives headlong into the bucket. Starts snorting and grunting and grinding and splashing slop all over the place. Yeah, even the farmer's a little embarrassed. While that pig is gorging himself in the slop, God miraculously changes that pig into a man. The tux no longer fits. And that, that pig now man immediately pulls his head out of the slop. He uh, begins to spit out what he had been eating not desirous to him at all, begins to wipe off his face. He climbs up into the chair, now sitting in it for the first time as a man, and he goes about trying to eat this new food, and it's actually appealing to him. But the, the pig now man is kind of new at this man stuff, and he slips off the stool, and he falls back into that bucket of slop. Yeah, no. It's about as true as a false story could be. <laughs> but this pig become a man, he doesn't stay there. He's, he's, he's embarrassed, he's, he's offended with himself. He wants nothing to do with that slop anymore, and he gets out. He gets out of that bucket, and he gets back up to the table. Right? What does all that mean? Other than making a few kids laugh. If you are in Christ, you once were a pig and you're not anymore. If 
You are in Christ. You once lived in that bucket of slop, your sin, but you don't anymore because God has changed you. He has regenerated you. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope. You are not who you once were. And when occasionally you slip and fall into that bucket, you don't stay there and go, these were the good old days. Oh, I remember when. God won't mind if I hang out here for a little while. You get out of that bucket as fast as you can because you're not a pig anymore. Right? So maybe you're here this morning. Look, every one of you in this room might be born-again followers of Jesus Christ. I know some of you are because I've heard testimony. I've fellowshiped with you. I have every reason to believe you're my brother or sister in Christ, and I hope you think the same way of me. But I don't know most of you. Again, all of you might be born again, and some of you might not. How might you know? How might you know? Where are you living? Where are you living? Are you seated at the table? Are you seated at the banqueting table with your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, pursuing a life pleasing to him because you love him and are so thankful to him for the love he has shown you through salvation by the grace of God alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone? Are you born again to a living hope, knowing that you have not reached a place of complete sanctification, and when you occasionally slip into that bucket of sin, you get out as soon as you can. Maybe sometimes you need the help of a shepherd, a pastor or a brother or sister in Christ to say, Tony, you're wallowing in the muck. Get out of there. And you get out. And you confess that sin and you repent of that sin and you're right back at the table because you're different. Because you've been saved. Or are you living in the bucket? Are you wearing the tuxedo that says in your mind, I'm a Christian? but are you living in the bucket? Do you say, oh, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, but you won't come out of the bucket. You won't get out of the slop of your own sin to sit at the table. Then you're probably not saved. And your pursuit of holiness is nothing but legalism. It's nothing but legalism. And if it is you, and I say if it is you, there's no accusation here. But if it is you, you're going to one day stand before Christ and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And you're going to cry, but I went to Calvary Baptist Church. I served. I went out with Marv on the streets. I read my Bible once in a while. And I pray before every meal, by golly. I know Jesus. If your trust and your hope is in the tux you're wearing, if the, your trust and the hope is in the church you're sitting, if the trust and the hope is in your track you're handing out, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Because you're a legalist. You're a Pharisee. You're a pig still in the bucket. But that doesn't have to be your lot. Because Jesus Christ came to save people from their sin. He came so that people would be caused to be born again to a living hope. He came to change hearts. He came to change minds. He came to change lives. He came to save people. He came to pull you out of the bucket of your slop. but you must come to God on his terms because God does not negotiate with pigs. God does not negotiate with sinners. You don't have a hole in your heart that's God-shaped that only he can fill. And God is not in yonder heaven longing for you because he's somehow empty without you. God doesn't need you any more than he needs me. 
But Jesus Christ bids you come. Jesus Christ calls you to repent and believe. Jesus Christ calls you to turn from your sin and by faith and by faith alone turn to God. Because Jesus came to die for sinners. So if there is any doubt in your mind at all, any doubt at all, do not be proud and arrogant like so many in this wicked generation. Humble yourself. Humble yourself before God. There are no proud people in heaven. There are no proud people in heaven because God humbled himself. Because Jesus Christ humbled himself, not only to take on human flesh, but to die a death he did not deserve at the hand of sinners like you and me. There are no proud people in heaven because Christ humbled himself. Humble yourselves. Do not harden your hearts like so many do in these days of rebellion. Humble yourself. Turn to Christ and live. He will forgive your sin, all of it, past, present, and future. He will forgive your sin. He will remove it as far as the east is from the west, and he will remember it no more. And you will be reconciled to the God you have spent your entire life offending by your sin, religious or non-religious. And you will have the assurance of eternal life, not because you're good, because you're not but because of the goodness of God that would allow his perfect and precious and priceless son to die for sinners like you and me. Turn to Christ and live while God has given you time. And if God does that miraculous work in you, and it's his, if he does that miraculous work in you and he causes you to be born again, then the desire of your heart will be to live a holy life, not as a means of salvation, but as a fruit of salvation given to you by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Turn to Christ and live while God has given you time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time and your word this morning. I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. I thank you, Father, that if any of us here truly desire to live a holy life, a godly life, it is only because of the work you have done in us and a work that you will complete in the day of Christ Jesus because it is by grace we are saved through faith. Father, I, I thank you that you would allow us to spend time in your word this morning. And, and I pray this morning, Father, as I so often do, Lord, if I have said anything, that is contrary to the truth of your word. I pray that my brothers and sisters in Christ have already forgotten it. And Father, that which I've said, which is, inconsistent, which is consistent with your word, I pray that we would all submit to it, not because a man preached it, but because you commanded of us in your word. And Lord, Father, I pray, not knowing who whose names are written in the book of life and not knowing ultimately who all the elect are, I pray, Father, if there is anyone here this morning who you have numbered among your elect, Father, who has not yet professed faith in Christ, I pray that this would be the day of salvation for them, that you would cause them to be a born again to a living hope for your own glory, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord, I pray. Amen.